0: You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitzky. Now trending is a new segment we hope to continue on Autism Weekly. And Dr. El Fatal is our first regular guest. We want to talk about current issues affecting the autism community and various solutions being undertaken to improve accessibility for everyone. Dr. El is the founder and CEO at Maraca Learning, a clinician led autism therapy provider headquartered in Boise, Idaho, as well as a PhD BCBA. He's also a board advisor to a multi-state autism therapy platform where he advises as a subject matter expert in ABA and Organizational Health. We'd also like to welcome Dr. Carrie Maleko, who serves as the Director of Curriculum Programming at Central Reach, an ABA therapy provider software resource. She and her team create a fully digital, integrated, evidence-based curriculum to service the needs of neurodiverse individuals. Dr. Maleko is also a trustee for the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. For the sake of transparency, we want to tell our listeners that PBS Kids is a customer of Central Reach. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited, but I you know what? I'm, I'm going to temper my excitement just because it's kind of a an offbeat issue right now. Is the reason that we're talking about it might not be the reason we should be discussing this? Um, unfortunately, is that. Um, there's been some really challenging rhetoric and and threats to providers recently about ABA and the application of ABA. And oftentimes these are misunderstandings. And oftentimes our industry needs to reflect on these issues and have the dialogue, but the rhetoric is stopping us from doing so. And uh, hopefully this starts that conversation. But, um, so uh, Carrie, I'd like for you to to yeah. give me a little bit of a background if you don't mind. And you've been sure. following this. Yeah, you know the mm-hmm. issues. And I'd mm-hmm. like for you to to kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of, you know what what's going on out there?
1: <laughs> sure. And you know, I think that we need to like figure out that there's it's multifaceted, right? And this is like a really nuanced conversation. Um, there's and, and we have to figure out who our audience is. Are we talking about parents or are we talking about fellow clinicians? Because those two conversations are going to be different. Um, if parents are coming to us and are saying, like, oh man, I'm hearing these things about ABA, then as providers, I think it's really our opportunity to be listeners. Because if we are pushing back, then really that is not a good look for us. You know, I um, you know, and I'm, I'm a transparent person. If you ever heard me talk or anything, like I really don't hold anything back. So I receive, I, I go to therapy. I think it's like healthy for everyone. Right. So I go to my therapist once a month and like, can, I can't even imagine going to like someone else and then me describing my therapy to another therapist. And they're like, well, that's not this type of therapy. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And really invalidating my experience, right? And so I think as BCBAs, we need to, you know, be open. But if we're talking about other fellow clinicians, maybe that is an opportunity where we can be like, you know, that's not my experience with behavior analysis. We can be a little bit more, right? And bring in that more sophisticated, analytical, highbrow conversation, but that's not what we're looking for when we're communicating with parents. We want to meet them where they're at and and try to shape up what it's like to be a good consumer of, of ABA, um, but in a very gentle, nurturing, approachable type of situation. And as well as like people who have received ABA, right? We don't want to invalidate those experiences and turn into the people who are like, I'm listening to make you wrong. That just is like a bad look for anyone, right? Absolutely.
0: As you describe that, Carrie, is that I sit back and I mean, for me, it's it's also the understanding of, you know, what is ABA? And sure. not all changing of behavior is... ABA so i was at a yeah. i was at a conference in tennessee recently and and i was listening and i think one of the biggest things to do is to be able to learn from those receiving care but also stakeholders that are involved in it and One of one of the people and and I see it in the rhetoric sometimes was putting out there that, you know, their parent when they were a child used to get angry at them, used to yell at them, used to use physical punishment and and actually Mm -hmm. kind of aggress towards them when they were engaging in some of their stereotypical behavior, like hand flapping or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that's not ABA, but it's being lumped into ABA because it's about behavior. And I think that some of these misunderstandings cause problems. I and mean, Rob, are you seeing similar things? I know that we've talked about this, but what are some of the myths that you're running into that you know you're seeing online? You're like, hold on, let's just pause first and discuss is this ABA before we get into the science?
2: Yeah. So I um Carrie and I were were collaborating last week on this post that I made. In 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 response to this exact question, which was like, this really isn't ABA the way that uh, the way that many of us were were trained to to do what we do best, right? So I think you know you just asked me, well, Rob, are you are you seeing this online? And I'll take it a step further, Jeff. I'm seeing it in real life. Like this is this is the third startup I've been a part of, and I have never really had to pay as much attention to this like anti-ABA rhetoric. Uh, misinformation movement, so to speak, as I do today. So I've never, ever, ever had to defend the practice of ABA as much as I do now. So uh, when we started our, our practice in Boise, or we opened our center in Boise, we started collecting data because we noticed that every family that was calling in, you know, we're, we're, we're taking we're taking intake uh, meetings and we're, we're meeting with families, we're giving them tours. And I'm hearing all of these things, Jeff. So like, I'll, I'll give you an example, on one of our center tours. We we a mom asked us like Rob are you gonna are you gonna allow them to go into the center if they if they if they choose not to greet the receptionist and I'm saying like yeah of course we're gonna allow them to go into the center <laughs> if if they choose not to greet the receptionist like. That's an interesting question. Um, I heard I heard, Rob, will they get snack even if they even if they're not performing during like the morning block of treatment? And I'm like, I'm not going to withhold food. I'm not going to withhold the opportunity to go have a great time in the center simply because your kid's not performing. So it's like I'm not only am I reading it online, but I'm experiencing it in practice day to day, week to week, you know
1: but the the thing is is that those questions come up because of a reason right like like the warning on the label at, at McDonald's about your coffee is there because of a reason right like oh. so so and and i bring back like the punishment issue like it was aba at a particular point in time we don't want it to be aba anymore we have Moved. We've evolved. Our science has grown into being something better and different, right? But in a point in time, it very much was a part of like the practice, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that's how behavior was changed and shaped. And there's people who like there's publications around it, and there was practice about it, like so. I, but we no longer accept it, and our and our code of ethics is like revising, like so. We have like. Is, is, and we also need to understand that our our industry, like, there, there's the science, there's the field, and then there's the industry. Our industry is an infant. Like, we just kind of came out of the womb, really, if, we, if you think about it. But we have to understand that, like, those tendrils are still kind of there. And some of the people who were trained by the people who had those practices still... May kind of have a little bit of a leaning, and so so I, I think that like like Robbie, like when you mentioned like, well, will they get snack? That could be someone who had a training from someone who utilized punishment, right? So there's like a whisper of that that still kind of exists in yeah. our field. Yeah. So like yeah. If the best course is for us to say like, as leaders and as people who really adhere to quality saying, we, this is not who we want to be. Mm -hmm. We don't want that. Right. And the more that we can do that and the more that we can say that, or as my kids would say, like, suss it out, right? Like the more we can do that, I think it better drives our field into this. And, and then, and the more we can make that public, then it helps the parents be better consumers of ABA,
0: yeah. yeah, I'm glad you said that, Carrie. is that, that when I think about kind of that line of thought of, you know, what Robin described as, you know, a parent came in with a legit concern. is my yeah. child being forced to do certain things to get to eat or to access treatment. And those are those are real concerns. And mm-hmm. it's something that industry wide, it's very hard to change what is out there if somebody were to do a search or to change the conversation that's occurring and that picks up pace and it's, it becomes an echo chamber at times. Um, and, and it's something we need to do. So what is what is the route? I mean, as practitioners or as recipients of care historically, you are the voice oftentimes to be able to say, no, this is, this is the corrective action. This is what it should look like or this was my personal experience. It looks nothing like that. How do we amplify that voice? How do we make sure that that's coming across?
2: Well, I want to I'm going to I want to answer that question, Jeff. And I also want to comment on what Carrie said. She, you know, I often refer to the phenomena that she described as chronological snobbery. It's like very easy for us to judge what we've done in the past. You know, we could look back 20, 40, 60 years and say, "Oh well, you know, behavior analysts did this or or that several, you know, several decades ago." And and yes, we have evolved. And so, and and you do it in a very empathetic way. It's like we're compassionately coming alongside families and helping them to better understand what modern day ABA looks like. Um, and so, in in relation to your question, I think just being more unified as as a field, as a scientific community and uh, in communicating what we do and why we do it and how we do it, like, I just think that there is no better way to address this issue than just being really good communicators, as Carrie mentioned already, being good listeners. Like we have mechanisms and systems and process now built into how we do what we do so that we can gather feedback and that we can address what families are hearing and their concerns. And this is all in the spirit of helping to defend the practice of ABA, which increases the likelihood that families are gonna get treatment that they need, medically necessary access to ABA you know, therapy. Uh, and so we've just tried to do a really good job individually in our org. Uh, but then I also think we have to do a better job corporately as a scientific community, continuing to uh, disseminate the science and and really leaning into the literature. Like ABA is effective, right? We all know that. We've, this is, uh, I know for, for me, this is all I've ever done. I think that that's the same for you for all as well. It's like we love the field. We, we we know what we're doing. And we need to lean into the, the evidence to support why we do what we do and uh, and I think we could do a better job corporately communicating that uh, uh, in in defense in defense of the the practice of ABA. I I think that's probably important. We've to- never
1: been we've never been great at marketing. <laughs> Let's just like yeah. call that out. Like, but yeah. you know, I think it would be great if we could, and like even organizations just put in their website, like here are the like. The things that we're committed to in our service delivery, like here's how we bring dignity to your to your learner. Right. Like like even those little things Rob, that you were mentioning, you know, like here's here's how we bring autonomy and dignity to your child when they step through our doors or when we come into your home. Right. Like things like that, that will just specify, like, how are we going to acknowledge their voice in the therapeutic process? I think that that in of itself would go a long way to help educating parents and even people who are looking for a place to work, other RBTs or new BCBAs and being like, ah, that's a place that's in alignment with my values and I wanna go there. Um, I think that that would go a long way in, in advancing the field and in being able to differentiate between like the type of services that are being provided from one place to another.
0: Yeah, Carrie, I think that, to be honest, what you're describing would be ideal is that everybody's able to encapsulate those values that exist and and that everybody should be putting out there if really their focus is Mm -hmm. client-centered and they're trying to be able to make sure that they're empowering people. Um, I also think that there's a role for having an open forum at times, is that whether that's a parent forum within organizations, whether that's a community forum where you're a part of those discussions. Um, and I mean, an example of that could be is that, Rob, I know that you have actively been involved with trying to keep that conversation when um, uh, electric shock therapy was was being revisited, which is not something that the industry at large truly supports, probably brought about from a stakeholder or a potential recipient or somebody concerned about the practice, but having that dialogue energize the community but we wouldn't have been there without having open dialogue. We wouldn't have been there without having those conversations and somebody to actually say, hey, listen, take a look inward right now. Yeah. This is being represented in the industry. What was that experience like for you as far as like, whoa, hold on, I didn't know that we had to retackle this issue Yeah, and this happens.
2: Yeah, I think you're right, Jeff. It was. It's. It's certainly not something that, again, you, you're not thinking much about it until you tell you are. Um, and so that was really just like me having discomfort myself, thinking, okay, well, like I as a you know scientist practitioner, am really uncomfortable with like the limited amount of information that I can even you know, find on this issue. So I thought, well, what would I normally do? It's like, you look to the literature, you engage your colleagues. And so really that's all, that's all we did. We, we thought it would be a good opportunity to have just open, honest conversation in the spirit of um, being intellectually honest and um, getting diverse perspectives and just not really telling anyone how to think, but uh, just hoping to create an environment where good honest dialogue could could be had and I think you know I think we accomplished that um, and I'm you know I'm very grateful for for the conversations that we did have so yeah it was it was very much like you just never think that you have to have those kinds of conversations until you do and and so yeah it was it was an interesting process uh, for sure and that's actually partly how Carrie and I got to meet which was wonderful like I'm glad and now we're having wine on Friday together at have
1: yeah to- <laughs> exactly yeah. Well- and the cool thing too is that, like, I was independently working with some, uh, some like, uh, autistic advocates and autistic BCBAs on the side and did some projects like in, in the year prior and have been doing, like, I know some people who've been doing some work with, J- like, protesting against JRC and stuff like that. And I think, like, in society, like, everyone's been talking more about advocacy and we've been having just, society as a whole talking about things that are not right. And I think just with, you know, the resignation of Jonathan and Amy with their program uh, coordinator positions, like everything just came to a head because like there's been protests at ABAI for every year, especially when it's held at Boston, but like around JRC. So for it to actually come to a vote now, like, and and I think, like, we would not have seen the the voting kind of be where it's at and for people to actually make a stand and and say the things that they said, like, any other year. Like, this mm-hmm. was the year. People would not, I don't think people were ready uh, yeah. any other year but this year,
0: just yeah, because of
1: where the society was
0: here you've made a good point though i mean earlier you had mentioned the fact that you know we're we're in our infancy i mean it's uh, when you look at medicine when you look at psychology when you look at behavioral health and then you look at aba is that i mean we're we're in our infancy right now mm-hmm. and we have changed a lot from a lab based science to oh, an yeah. implemented science to a compassionate science and that path over time Takes a little bit to be able to trickle in, permeate the entire industry, and to show that, you know, conversations like talking about ascent. Would we have been having those conversations 15 years ago? Maybe not, because we're still trying to stand up the science in right. a practice an environment should
2: we have well, had
1: them yes <laughs> i actually know some people I, I i attended some talks 15 years ago about ascent but nobody else like it didn't catch on right it wasn't like, back
2: then yeah
1: it was, like, it was so michael fabrizio i attended a talk in like 2003 2004 and it was about ascent and he learned it from dr shala ali right like but but it didn't catch on, right? Like nobody else was like, and people were like, what? You're reinforcing escape. That is bonkers, right? And then they were like, end of end of thought, end of story, move on. Like it, people were not ready to hear it. And even some people right now are not ready to hear it. But the cool thing is, a lot of people are. Yeah. And so it's like, all right. So for the majority of the people who are ready to move and and become more compassionate and have that televisibility with their therapeutic approaches, cool, let's take this and let's move it and let's shift our field into that direction. Yeah.
2: You know, Jeff, I, I think a lot about like cultural practices and we're working on a, we're working on a paper that will also, you know, hopefully turn into um, different presentations, but the, this this whole idea of like cultural practices, you know, the the field of ABA, our industry is producing products and services that are designed to get selected by the the market right the market in this case is kids with autism and their families we love kids with autism we love their families we want to serve them well so i think what i'm noticing is this shift in like we're needing to to modify the way in which we do what we do our cultural practices to better the likelihood that they're going to get selected by the selecting market. If we continue mm-hmm. to do things in the way that we, you know, we did them 15, 20, 30 years ago, I think we're really going to struggle. And now I, I, I want to be very clear, like issues of Ascent are, are that's a fascinating subject to me. And we're, we're going to continue talking about that at another time. I, I know, I know it, but <laughs> like, that's fascinating because it really does like Ascent can in many ways feel very like, counterintuitive or counterproductive to the behavior analyst. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of ambiguity out there that I think does need to be cleared up. Because I what I'm noticing now is like behavior analysts aren't really sure like, well, what do I do with this issue? And, and how do I do what I do? Because I was trained this way and now I'm hearing that I need to do things this way. So that's an area that like, I think as an industry we could do better communicating and informing uh, how we do what we do. Again, so cultural practices, if we continue to do things the way that we've done them in the past, they may not get, get selected. Yeah. Or- Readily selected by the market that we have, you know, we, we exist to serve this this population of people, not just kids with autism, um, but they're they're not so into doing uh, doing things maybe the way that we we used to do them. So we do have to adapt and we have to evolve. Absolutely. And as
0: as time has gone on, I, I think that it becomes a challenge for each one of us individually to stay on top of what is moving through the research, moving through the literature, being able to digest it. And then taking that to a workforce and making sure they understand the mm-hmm. how's, the whys, the ambiguity around some of these issues could cause for horribly run practice if you don't understand exactly the technology that's going into it. Um, so as much as like we look back and say, yeah, you know what, I'm not doing what I did 15 years ago. There are conceptually a lot of things that I'm doing from 15 years ago that I'm doing right now. I've just made them better over time. I've shaped my own practice over time. And I've looked at, you know, what can I add to it to make it better, but stay consistent with the principles? And I think that's something that we all need to challenge. But what else? I mean, when you look at what people are are seeing as ABA, because that's their perception, mm-hmm. What is it that we as practitioners need to do as far as making sure that we're practicing correctly to dispel the myths? Because as much as you could talk about it, it's doing it the right way that becomes even more important. I mean, Kerry, what do you think as far as that goes? I mean, you've done a lot of research on what's going on with our field. I mean, what could we be doing differently, whether that's training or, I mean, anything, even on the research we're choosing? What could we be doing differently right now?
1: Yeah, that's that's a lot to um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think a lot of it starts with the training, right? Like it's um you can look back at um how it how it's kind of trickled. We have university programs that are structured where they may not have a, a lot of like practicum related like adjacent type of things. Cause you think about how someone actually gets their credential and it is, you know, you have your test you have your uh, courses that you take, and then you have your experience hours. And those experience hours are really heavily relied upon. And the traditional model was a brick and mortar place where you would go. And then, and that, and you also got your practice and your experience hours that was related to the brick and mortar place. Well, now so many people are getting their degree from online universities and And then from wherever they're working. And so there's not a lot of oversight with regards to the practicum experience hours type of thing. So really, um, it's... It's ensuring that those experience hours are quality and that are not like when I was uh, teaching, I used to, uh, I was an adjunct faculty member at University of West Florida. And when I would teach my classes and I was like, okay, so this is how you run an FBA or functional analysis. and, And they would, well, that's not how we do it. Or I would be like, here's the intervention. That's not how we do it. And I was that's when I learned about the like ooh, the cringe moments that are occurring at some of these these agencies. And so I think that if we are able to get a tighter control, at, at least at that level, then some of this, ooh, maybe that wasn't the best ABA, or even maybe that wasn't ABA, right? Like some of those things, if we can get tighter control around our creation of BCBAs, that then... Like, I think that that would be like a good 80 20 rule, right? That would really tightly control a lot of the more procedural uh, kind of applications of ABA as opposed to like the critical thinking, analysis, the effectiveness of ABA.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, and you touched on the, the training and the, the education component, but the practice component is just as important. You have large mm-hmm. organizations that have a lot of people under their umbrella. They're going to oftentimes try and support whatever initiatives, whatever training that they were given within the organization. And we, as a field, didn't have our core standards organizationally until, I mean, just a few years ago. I mean, this is
1: new for us. baby, right?
0: And I mean, Rob's gone through this. You've gone through looking at standards and even accreditation standards and evaluating, you know, for each one of your organizations, is this the right thing to do? Do I believe in these core standards? I mean, are there things within a crediting body or within an industry guidance, uh, whether that's uh, the Council of Autism Service Providers, whether that's that on the individual level, the BACB, that they need to be doing a little bit more of? Or is, I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so I think that, you know, the, the, a lot of the anti-ABA rhetoric and misinformation is fueled by immense variability in quality. Right. We know that that's like a root cause of, of this issue. And unfortunately, it's very it's very uh, it's very catchy and rightfully so. And the concerns are, can be very valid. But th- this is what's like this is what's considered the the fallacy of sweeping generalization. We take one story, we we publish it. And then all of a sudden, all of ABA is what happened in this one case in some part of the country and it's unfortunate and and I hate that that happens. So I think that because the anti-ABA rhetoric misinformation movement has been largely fueled by such variability in quality, then yeah, I would absolutely agree that Having like a unified sense of what the standards are, like we, we certainly need to raise the bar. Uh, it's unfortunate, Jeff, that quality in, in today's ABA is like a competitive advantage and it shouldn't be. Quality should just be like what we all do, right? Like it's, it's a competitive advantage for me because I'm a quality ABA provider and it shouldn't be. There should be other things that give me a competitive advantage. So quality should just be like a given. We should all have high quality. We should produce high quality uh, products and services for families that, that are entrusting us to serve them well. So I certainly appreciate all of the work that all of the accreditation bodies have done, whether it's, you know, Casper or the others. Um, I also think that like, this is, you know, one of my colleagues and I, when we were working on a paper, um, over the course of the last, you know, four or five years, one of the things that we also took away was, Hey, you know what? Like we shouldn't also, organizations shouldn't wait for, accrediting bodies to tell them whether or not they're high quality or, you know, it's like, no, no, just take the bull by the horns and just do the things that you know can increase the likelihood of, of quality, you know, outcomes for your learners. So I think that, yes, accredi- accrediting bodies and um, the organizations in our industry that are, are so wonderful at helping us to identify how we should be doing what we're doing. I think that they play a huge part in this. I also think that individual providers can do a lot to continuously improve what they're doing and, and, and how they're doing it by collecting data and by responding to those data and putting you know, initiatives in place or, or intervening on certain areas where you can be improving. Uh, so we just have to be more reflective, collect lots of data, um, interview your families as, as often as you can. Like, we exist to produce socially significant outcomes for our families. And yet, you know, I, I'm sure it's it's a temptation for many organizations to not even, like, get the feedback from their families as often as they should. Maybe you get it in an, in an evaluation cycle or
0: mm-hmm. like, an accreditation
2: cycle or something like that. But man, like, you could do so much uh, in terms of listening to your families and then uh, designing organizational, like, interventions to help improve quality across the, across the org. It's funny that you're
0: having to remind us of this, um, but it's true. I mean, we talk about this in our management team all the time as far as an industry it's, it's, you know, why is it that the behavioral health industry and ABA specifically it's not running more data on, on a regular basis. I mean, it, it's selectively, you have, you have organizations that are doing it and doing it well. They're trying to be able to manage it. They're trying to understand those key factors all the time, but it's taken our industry quite a while to even get to the point where we're aggregating some of this stuff to try and figure out as a whole, okay, where do we need to shift? What have we done well? What haven't we done well? Um, and from that process, I think one thing that I've learned And I and I think it's a valid concern from some of those that are that are saying you know what ABA needs to do better here is on our focused care models on our um, care for older adolescents young adults and through adulthood. Is that we're trying to apply what we learned in early intervention often to that group? It's not right. It's not and even close. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it it um, is. It's healthy to have that dialogue and to say, okay, well, let's collect data on that. And and Kerry, you have access to a
1: variety <laughs> of data.
0: I mean, are you guys doing anything?
1: <laughs> not a whole heap of data. But you know, here's the thing, though, is that it's really hard because when you're looking at outcome data, the um the industry, I'm gonna, the industry, still won't even we, we we don't even agree upon what outcome data are right yeah. like, like how we're even measuring what a goal is like there's not even consensus like you can even look within a single organization and unless the organization is run like a like a well-oiled machine like the within a single organization they may not have like an agreed upon definition of what a goal is so if you are using a like learner's progress on goals mastered, then one learner's goals mastered is not going to be equivalent to another learner's goals mastered. Right. So, so really like you're just looking at assessment scores, but then if you look within an organization, like, well, how are they using assessments, right? Are they, are they using assessments as curriculum? Are they using a battery of assessments or are they, are they incorporating standardized assessments or is, are they, are they including any norm reference assessments are they only just criterion based assessments? So it's just like, we, we still need some maturation in our industry for us to really accurately use the data like we are we're, we're it's it's like it's, it's we're like quarters over here with our data but, but for us to use them in a meaningful way to translate into the progress that we've made to to indicate effectiveness we need those data to actually mean something at, at an aggregate level and right now they don't really no, for sure. And I mean, and
0: even looking at it, it just causes confusion at times as far as to those that are looking from the outside in and saying, Okay, so how are you evaluating what's occurring and what, what are what are those what are those indicators of, of prognosis or progress or yeah. success? Yeah. Um or is it just we need to make sure that we have good indicators of quality practice? And right. So there's that, but either way, there's data to collect. There's data to look there's at data there's to collect. Data to and we're still so
1: too much at yeah, and we're too, still too much at the single case design that we we don't have any standardization for like like group data is mm-hmm. what I'm you know more or less saying like we we still there is value and need for a level of standardization for us to get some large end data.
0: Yeah. And I think that that holds true. And um, and Rob, you probably because you you manage a variety of uh, BCBAs through your practices stor- historically, but for me. Having that data helps me to manage at a regional level, a BCBA level, at an organizational level to know, hey, where are we missing gaps? Where, Where are we not performing? Do we need to work harder on training on generalization? Do we need to look a little bit deeper on how we're training our BCBAs to be able to enhance communication skills? You can start to look at that data over time and then quality of life data. Are we actually getting the feedback from families to know, you know, yeah, my quality of life is better. Did we talk to the actual recipient of care and yeah. hear from them, yes, you empowered me. Like this, I've been able to do A, B or C because I have these skills now. And now I feel like I can contribute in the way I really want to across, or are we choosing wrong goals at times? And so Rob, I mean, you've experienced the same thing I have, I think, but I mean, is that is that kind of how you've used data historically?
2: Yeah, so historically, that's that's exactly how we've used it. Since we're a, a startup, we're still like we don't have access to as much data as I would like. I, I look forward to the to the day five, ten years from now when we can really analyze trends and 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 design interventions based on you know a larger a larger data set. But uh, you know, on a on a small level, and this this anyone can do this. We just we just opened our center, Jeff, in in March. So if I can do this, anyone can. So. I would say, like, one cultural practice that we've began is administering a quarterly, um, we've gone through like a a quarterly assessment. So every quarter, we just did our first one uh, in the fall of this year, and we administered a number of different surveys, both staff and, and family surveys we um we created like this first round was adapted. Um, we used kind of an adapted compassionate collaboration uh, tool um, that uh, Jessica Rohr and her, and her colleagues uh, just published recently. And so we adapted that 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 survey. We administered it. We added additional questions that were very specific to our practice and how we were doing what we were doing. And um, and we gathered those data, and, and once the data came in, we analyzed them, we reported on them, like we, we're making our, how we're making like what we do very public, uh, because we think that uh, families and uh, other, you know, other, other people in the community, our staff, they need to know, like, how did we do, right? Like, did we do, did we, did we do well? W- what are our areas of improvement? And so yeah that's exactly how that's exactly how we're doing it jeff we're 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 going through kind of a quarterly process of, of rigorous kind of evaluation of ourselves again not in the spirit of like we should be able to improve what we're doing on our own without relying on external bodies and sources. Like I I love and appreciate the professional organizations in our field, but I also need to just like, I need to do what I know I need to do for my own organization because my Mm -hmm. own organization is very unique and different. And, and so, yeah, we've been very, um, we've been very uh, fortunate to have like gone through, I don't know, that process and we learned a lot and we made changes as a result. And, And the most important part of our evaluation of ourselves was, our social validity section like are we making a meaningful improvement in the lives of our families and we did really well there and i was really proud of that above all the things it was like man Moms and dads and caregivers and aunts and uncles and grandparents are saying my quality of life is better because Morocco was involved and that just made like a huge difference to us so yeah that's exactly how we're doing it and uh, that process will continue to evolve and get better over time but um, we're just yeah we're very we're using data as much as we can even in our small little you know thing that we've got going in, in Idaho. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's going to
0: make a world of difference. And, that, mm-hmm. and I think I, I see the same thing for us is that
2: it, it makes
0: a lot of difference when you're able to be transparent, show your staff what you're actually seeing, mm-hmm. being able to e- even kind of present at conferences and say, you know, these are flaws that we recognized mm-hmm. within our organization and, and we were able to fix it because we had that retrospect yeah. to, to sit down and look. So, I mean, I look at I look at a lot of these issues and it's not something that's gonna go away. People are gonna have questions. Um and unfortunately, Rob, you had brought up the fact that, you know, it's the it's the horrific story, the amplified voice on social media that's going to grab all the attention. It's going to drive, it's it's a threat to an ABA organization that, that just recently happened. Those things are high alert and everybody's focused on it. But these conversations need to be occurring all the time. And quite frankly, as an industry, we need to have a venue for us to be able to talk about any of the misinformation yeah. and for any of the information being able to educate on. But then also hear the recipients of care. Like We need to have a stakeholder involvement in, in understanding where the concerns are because we can't address what we don't consciously, consciously know our concerns of others. So Carrie, you you have done, I mean, and, and you're you're outwardly vocal about, you know, having transparency, having those discussions, making sure that, you know, we're we're looking at ourselves inwardly. Um where can families go to talk about this?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um I would say like, you know, finding communities um and uh like social media can be both like a great place and a scary place but finding um other people and other parents as well as I would say other autistics who have like lived lived it and know like like there are other autistics who uh have gone through therapy and like you want to hear all sides you want to be an informed quote unquote voter, if you will. Right. Like, so, so go out there. There's this, um, website that I love called, uh, the thinking person's guide to autism. And it is a blog site that is written by, um, uh, a whole bunch of people around, uh, uh, like the idea around autism as well as many autistics and parents who write about it. And it is, chock full of great articles and resources about it as well as uh there's another uh website called neuroclassic that has a ton of resources as well those are places that i would go but also just like finding your own community like there's uh places like the arc is national and finding your own like uh like hub or if there's one close to you and finding resources and getting plugged in to uh like the disability community uh, and and finding like what are resources because also parents need to find like a reprieve like you need a break like you need to also tap into like what are some resources for yourself um, to allow yourself to to just have an outlet Um, and uh, so like those are some places that I would go and I recommend to parents to just educate yourself as well as to, to kind of find a place to just educate as well as to to get away from the scary.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, I think that one thing that we have to be careful about is shutting off the voices and not listening to them. And oftentimes, and uh, Carrie, you had mentioned it in the very beginning, is that we, we have a lot of polarity. We have a lot of, in our society, is that you have somebody will yell something and then you have to pick a side. And it's not healthy to do that. If I I would say one thing to a a family member or a recipient of care or a advocate or an autistic is go and ask the questions, Mm -hmm. go to somebody who's in the field and say, you know, I heard this. Is this is this accurate or what Mm -hmm. would you be doing or what would you be recommending in this? Because. It's that one instance that could turn into a misinformation or turn into something that vitriol has now started. And that's what we want to avoid. We want conversation. We don't want finger pointing, yelling, screaming. We want to be able to be able to talk and understand to make ourselves better. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, and Rob, as far as practitioner wise, what would you be recommending on this topic? I mean, I wanna make sure that everybody has a place to be able to to lean on or to say, you know, on these issues, this is some guidance as, how do I work through it?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question, Jeff. I would say that um, practitioners need to lean into their teams for sure. This is not something that any one BCBA can really tackle on their own. I think it's important that you communicate really well and you collaborate with your colleagues. I would say organizations need to be as prepared as they can be to handle these issues and to address the 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 rhetoric, the misinformation. I also think there's another category of of information. I think I think part of this is just real stories that get shared that have valid concerns. So uh, again, I'm not trying to minimize any of those stories, the the concerns shared in those stories, they're I'm sure they're real and and yeah. so, you know, I think that just like just like when you do a functional analysis, Jeff, like you're you identify the function of the behavior and then you you uh, you design the intervention accordingly based on the function. Right. I think that we as practitioners and organizations need to do the same thing. It's like, is this rhetoric? If so, this is how I'm going to respond. Is this is if is this misinformation? If so, I'm going to respond this way. And is this just a story that has validity and. And, you know, parents have real concerns because they've read this 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 story on the Internet or wherever they've heard it. Um, And then I'm going to respond accordingly in that situation. So I think that really like this is how I'm thinking about it, like first classify what type of, you know, what type of issue you're dealing with and then respond accordingly. So, yeah, I would say orgs need to be prepared. And individual BCBA should be collaborating with their teams as much as they can, because this is these are complex issues and um, you want to handle them with the utmost like respect and concern and uh, for, for the families that are sharing those concerns and the staff, by the way, staff are also concerned uh, regarding some of this like anti-ABA rhetoric and misinformation. So you want to lovingly lead them to I whenever I have an opportunity to like coach the team through something or guide them, it's always like. It's trying to compassionately understand where they're coming from and help them to see that the way that we do things in our unique individual organization is not what's being represented in in the media elsewhere. So, yeah, it's important. I I, I appreciate that. And that's
0: uh, it sounds as if it's coming from the mind of a behavior analyst. I mean, you're looking at it behaviorally and and honestly, it makes me think a lot of uh, the presentations Patrick Freeman used to do. And I just probably Mm -hmm. still doing them, but about how behavior analytic principles exist everywhere. And so it's it's how you use them. But Carrie, you had something that I think you wanted to add to that.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say is that, like, be cautious you know like back in our old ethics code it was like you know dismantle any like misinformation is like but that also put us in like a defensive mode which i think was a bad look i think when we see some stuff that's out there if it's like a post and someone's using the term reinforcement wrong or someone's saying like all aba is based on punishment or something like that i think if you because one thing to know is that like going against someone else's point of view is just actually research indicates that it's actually gonna allow them to be, it it doesn't change that person's point of view. It actually creates them to have like a stronger position of that same point of view. So you may not wanna be like, you're wrong in all these ways, but if you feel like you need to post so that other other onlookers can be informed, you can just say like, listen, I'm a BCBA and this is this is what I hold. And yeah. this is, like, as a value, and this is what I learned, and this is what I practice, As opposed to being, like, getting into, like, this, like, high noon situation with the original poster. I think, like, us really thinking about how we want to look and how we want to show up, and again, thinking about the future of our field, but knowing that, like, that person posted because of an experience, because of a situation, because of something that they read, or or because of how... ABA showed up in the past. Like we don't want to invalidate someone else's experience, and because of a single post, we actually don't know what they're operating from and what what history like they're responding to. Yeah. So I think you know being mindful of how we show up is is of the utmost importance.
2: Yeah, yeah be values so be values aligned in how you're responding. You know, we, we submitted a proposal for a presentation, and if it gets accepted, we'll, we'll be able to go through, like, how we classify each of these categories of, of, you know, anti-ABA rhetoric, misinformation, et cetera, and some potential ways to respond in the spirit of being winsome. As Carrie said, like, it doesn't help. You know, my kids go to a, a classical school, and in, in the school of rhetoric, they learn to be very good debaters, and they have really sound arguments for everything. And And um, I'm also teaching my kids to remember that sometimes just, you know, debating for the sake of debating isn't always helpful Um, and and pointing out when other people are wrong. And so, yeah, you can tell me every kind of fallacy on the planet, but that's not gonna lovingly bring somebody to your side, right? So I think that there are ways to be good listeners and to engage the conversation, but also clarify and dispel the, the myths. Like, again, I'm not gonna withhold treatment because your kid didn't greet the receptionist. Like, that's just not how I'm gonna do what I do. But you read that somewhere, and so let's just talk about it. And and you know what that center tour that that one center tour went really well and the family I think understood like you know they they walked behind the doors and they realized like oh this is not what I read about online and that was that was magical you know that, that type of experience so yeah
0: no and and I appreciate I mean but what you both said there and and it actually is going to kind of put on the table is. What we need to do further on on the podcast is that I I do need to have that conversation with somebody who has questions and listen to them and try and understand where it is that we're not seeing the same way on some of the issues and and give that voice. And I appreciate the fact that we had this this dialogue today because it's it's healthy to do within a professional group and to have that conversation. I think the next step is to have that conversation outside of the professional group and to have it with somebody who wants to talk about this in a way that's going to be productive. Um, Rob, you're going to be there with me, so put on your hat, be ready to <laughs> okay, go. Terry, uh, thank you so much. I mean, your your thank wealth you. wisdom and just sharing some of that experience and some of the knowledge has been, I mean, it's it's grateful for the field that that we have somebody who can come in and articulate the way that you did a lot of these issues. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in, see you again next week.